friends, and welcome back to Strange Places. This podcast... I completely forgot what I was going to say. We're off to a great start. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and DistroKid. Today, we're going to travel to ancient Egypt. Based on the title here, you know what we're going to talk about. It's a loaded one, which is why I'm getting right into it. The Curse of the Pharaohs, or the Mummy's Curse is a curse alleged to be cast upon anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, especially a pharaoh. This curse, which does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, is claimed to cause bad luck, illness, or death. Now, since the mid-20th century, many authors, documentaries, films, have argued that the curse is real, in the sense of having scientifically explainable causes such as bacteria, radiation, and all that stuff. However... The modern origins of the Egyptian mummy curse tales, their development primarily in European cultures, the shift from magic to science to explain curses, and their changing uses from condemning disturbance of the dead to entertaining horror film audiences, suggest that Egyptian curses are primarily a cultural, not scientific phenomenon. But there are occasional instances of genuine ancient curses a lot of people say appearing inside or on the facade of a tomb as in the case of the mastaba of ikenehi i know i'm saying that wrong i have listeners in egypt i'm really sorry guys of the 6th dynasty at saqqara these appear to be directed towards the ka priest to protect the tomb carefully and preserve its ritual purity rather than as a warning for potential robbers There's been stories of curses going back to the 19th century, but they multiplied after Howard Carter's discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Despite popular misconceptions, no curse was found inscribed in Tut's tomb. Despite what you read, despite what you hear, there wasn't any warning above the door, right? But the evidence for curses relating to Tut is considered to be so meager that Donald B. Redford viewed it as unadulterated claptrap. I quote, But, how many people were dead in its wake? Let's take a look and see what's really going on here. Possibly. Curses relating to tombs are extremely rare. Possibly because the idea of um, such desecration was unthinkable and even dangerous to record in writing. It was something they didn't even think about. They most frequently occur in private tombs of the Old Kingdom era. The tomb of... Man, I suck at this. Antifi? I could say Akhenaten, hopefully, <laughs> but this is not Akhenaten. Antifi. Akhenaten's my favorite pharaoh, by the way. Contains the warning. See, if, if you ask somebody who's your favorite pharaoh and they can't answer that, that's a person not to be stru- trusted, walk away. One of my basis is, you know, a, a basis of being a, a personal friend, you have to have a favorite pharaoh. <laughs> Any, this, his contains, not Akhenaten, but Antifi, 9 to 10th dynasty around there, contains this warning. Seriously, this actually says it on his tomb. Any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin may herein do not accept any goods he offers, as is may hair, nor heaven he will inherit. Whoa, (laughs) that's some heavy shit. The tomb contains an inscription that also says, As for all men who enter this tomb, impure there will be judgment. An end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him and all who walk into the tombs of my Pharaoh brethren. See, in this argument, people say, 
Tutankhamun didn't have to have shit in his tomb because one guy already took care of it. Curses after the Old Kingdom era are less common, though more severe, sometimes invoking the ire of Toth or the destruction of Sekhmet. Zahi Hawass quotes an example of a curse. Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh, that they shall break the seal of this tomb and meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. There are some modern accounts. Hieroglyphs were not deciphered, though. you got to keep this in mind. Hieroglyphs weren't deciphered until deciphered, deciphered until the early 19th century. So reports of curses before this are simply perceived bad luck associated with the handling of mummies and other artifacts from tombs. In 1699, Louis Penchet wrote an, art, uh, an account in which he recorded how a Polish traveler bought two mummies in Alexandria and embarked on a sea journey with the mummies and the cargo hold. The traveler was, al- the traveler was alarmed by reoccurring visions of two specters and the stormy seas did not abate until the mummies were thrown overboard. That's not apocryphal. That actually happened. Zahi Hawass recalled that as a young archaeologist excavating, could, you know, could be coincidence, but I'm straight up telling you, we give you the, uh, you know, the yes, this happened and no, this didn't happen. We, we, we look at it, the whole spectrum of this thing, right? Zahi Hawass Recalled that as a young archaeologist excavating at Kamaubilo, he had to transport several artifacts from the Greco-Roman site. His cousin died that day, his uncle died on its first anniversary, and on the third anniversary, guess what? Auntie died. Anniversary to the day. Years later, when he excavated the tombs of the builders of the pyramids at Giza, yeah, he encountered the curse, and this was actually carved there. Okay? (laughs) This was actually written down. Verbatim, all people who enter this tomb who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, the snakes against them on land, may the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion on land. Basically, it's the Egyptian version of saying, come in here and you're fucked. Though not superstitious, Hawass decided not to disturb the mummies. Smart guy. (laughs) More common sense than some people will learn about. Not to uh, disrespect the dead. I'm just saying it like it is. However, he later was involved in the removal of two child mummies. He seemed to have forgotten (laughs) how smart he was, right? From the Baharia Oasis to a museum and reported that he was haunted by the children in his dreams. The phenomena did not stop until the mummy of the father was reunited with the children in the museum. That happened as well. He concluded that mummies should not be displayed, though it was a lesser evil than allowing the general public into the tombs. Hawass also recorded an incident of a sick young boy who loved ancient Egypt and was subject to a miracle cure in the Egyptian museum when he looked into the eyes of Ahmose I. The idea of a mummy reviving from the dead, an essential element, right, of many mummy curse tales, was developed in... The Mummy, or A Tale of the 20th Century, an early work of combining science fiction and horror, written by Jane C. Loudon, <laughs> Mary Shelley beat you, and published in 1827. I was just looking at the year. Louisa May Alcott was uh, thought by uh, uh, Dominic Montserrat to have been the first to use a fully formed mummy curse plot in a story. Uh, this was in uh, 1869. This has been a story forever, right? 
Now, the big one that everybody talks about, one that I think we're going to center the most on, because that's the most publicized, really, the most researched, King Tut's tomb. The belief in a curse was brought to many people's attention due to the deaths of <laughs> a shitload of people having anything to do with Coward, uh, Howard Carter's team and other prominent visitors to the tomb shortly thereafter. Carter's team opened the tomb of, uh, tomb of Tooth and Common, in 1923, the son of Akhenaten, actually, my favorite pharaoh, launching the modern era of Egyptology. The famous Egyptologist James Henry Breast... Fuck. Breast... Breasted? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Worked with Carter. <laughs> I do all this research, and I don't even bother to write down names phonetically, which is what I should do. There's a podcast out there that does stuff kind of like this. And they look up the translations on Google, and they don't type down the last names. They type it down, like, phonetically. Smart guy. Smarter than me, I guess. Now, Brist had worked with Carter soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a message on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, the messenger thought he heard a faint, almost human cry. No shit. Upon reading the, uh, reaching the entrance, sorry, he saw the birdcage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth and this fueled local rumors of a curse. You know how they used to take canaries into uh, caves and stuff? If there was poison, they didn't have stuff to detect that, right? So if there's poisonous gases and the canary died, that means, you know, there's some kind of poisonous whatever there and you need to get the fuck out, right? That's why they had canaries with them when they, you know, would uh, go mining and stuff like that. The same thing as when they did the, uh, the tombs. Arthur Weigel, a previous inspector general of antiquities to the Egyptian government, reported that this was interpreted as Carter's house being broken into by the royal cobra, the same as that worn on the king's head to strike enemies on the very day the king's tomb was being broken into. An account of the incident was reported by the New York Times on December 22, 1922. The first of the... And we'll get really into the deaths. This is just kind of a... A sampler before we really start getting into meat. The first of the deaths was that of Lord Cam Carnavron. Carna Car Wow. Carnarvon. Carnarvon? Carnarvon. The first of the deaths was that of Lord Carnarvon, who financed the excavation. He was bitten by a mosquito and later slashed the bite accidentally while shaving. You guys know what happened? It became infected, and that resulted in blood poisoning. Two weeks before he died, Marie Coralie wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World Magazine in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a tomb. Media frenzy followed. Rest is history. Even <laughs> what's funny is the, the very superstitious Benito Mussolini, actually, who had once accepted an Egyptian money, a mummy as a gift, heard about this and ordered its immediate removal. He's like, no, I am fucking with that. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, that that Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Gnabron's death, uh, death had been caused by elementals, created by Tutankhamun's priest to guard the royal tomb, and this further fueled the media interest. Arthur Wago reported that six weeks before Gnabron's death, he had watched the Earl laughing and joking as he entered the king's tomb. Not smart. I wouldn't even do that if there wasn't a curse. Right? Isn't that a way to just kind of fucking bring about one? Ugh. 
apparently very jovial about the dead kings inside. Man. And uh, what's interesting <laughs> is that Arthur Weigel, when he entered the tomb, he actually said under his breath, shouldn't have done that. I give him six weeks to live. Yeah. The first autopsy carried out on the body of Tutankhamun by Dr. Derry found a healed lesion on the left cheek. But as Camavron had been buried six months previously, it was not possible to determine if the location of the wound on the king corresponded with the fatal mosquito bite on Camavron. Weird, huh? A study of documents and scholarly sources led the Lancet to conclude it was unlikely that Camavron's death had anything to do with Tutankhamun's tomb. Like, I, you know, we're giving you both sides here. Resulting, uh, refuting another theory that exposure to toxic fungi had contributed to his demise. The report points out that Earl was one of many to enter the tomb on several occasions and that none of the others were affected. Well, we'll see about that. The cause of Camembert's death was reported as pneumonia superventing on, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, basically what it is. It's a medical term for a streptococcal infection of the skin and underlying soft tissue. Pneumonia was thought to be only one of various complications arising from the progressively invasive infection that eventually resulted in multi-organ failure. The Earl had been prone to frequent and severe lung infections, according to The Lancet. There'd been a great belief that one acute attack of bronchitis could have killed him anyway. In 1925... The anthropologist uh, Henry Field, accompanied by Brist, had visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingram, was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet marked with... <laughs> talk about tempting fate. This is what the bracelet was carved. This is what was carved on it. Cursed be who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, guess what happened? Ingram's fucking house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're getting into some bizarre territory now. Isn't that strange that it happened in the exact order that what was carved on the bracelet? Uh, cue uh, Twilight Zone music. Howard Carter was entirely skeptical of such, tur of cur you know, these curses, dismissing them as Tommy Rot. Yeah, that's a term they used back then. I wish we still said that. Oh, Tommy Rot. I like it. It's elegant. And commenting that the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect, awe, and a lot of disrespect, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. Yeah, he said that all day. In May 1926, he reported in his diary a sighting of a jackal. At the same, the same type as Anubis, the guardian of the dead. For the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert, though he did not attribute this to supernatural causes. Skeptics have pointed out that many others who visited the tomb, or even helped to discover the damn thing, lived long and healthy lives. A study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and the sarcophagus were opened, only 8 died within a dozen years. All the others were still alive, including Carter, who died of lymphoma in 39 at the age of 64. Last survivors included Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Cavanaugh's daughter, who was among the first people to enter the tomb after its discovery in 1922, who lived for a further 57 years, died in 1980. 
American archaeologist J.L. Kinnaman died in 61, 39 years after the event. But is there something here? Did the curse pick and choose certain people? We'll look at it. Like I said, we're going to mainly focus on Tutankhamun's curse. That's the most well-known. So, <laughs> like as I said, in early 23, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his financier, George Herbert, Lord Canaveron, ceremoniously, you know, ceremoniously opened the long-obscured burial chamber of Tutankhamun himself, Valley of the Kings. Two months later, Canaveron was dead. Killed by the said blood poisoning from the mosquito bite on his cheek. Newspapers speculated he was the victim of the mummy's curse. Because, you know, newspapers weren't all about just sensationalism back then. Not according to the British Medical Journal, which did a study in 2002, actually. Survival rates of 44 Westerners whom Carter had identified as being in Egypt when the tomb was examined. The curse was said not to affect native Egyptians. Interesting. The study compared the mean age of death for the 25 of those people who were present at the opening of the examination of the tomb with the others who weren't. They didn't find any significant association between potential exposure to the mummy's curse and survival, as well as no sign at all that those who were exposed were more likely to die within 10 years. Some theorists, seeking a scientific explanation, say that Canaveron's death may actually have been linked to toxins within Tut's tomb itself. Now, hear me out here. This is the thing. While some ancient mummies have been shown to carry potentially dangerous species of mold, yes, the tomb walls could have been covered with bacteria known to attack the respiratory system. I call bullshit on this. I know that one major attack of bronchitis could have killed Carter, but there were a lot of people in there, man. A lot. They argue that Camembert was chronically ill before he even set near, foot near the tomb, which is disputed by, you know, just everybody he fucking knew. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have to look at all sides of it, right? We need to look at the circumstances surrounding it. We're going to use King Tut's, uh, what happened there as the example, okay? I know there's other ones, but King Tut, we're going to use that as the measuring rod for the mummy's curse, okay? November 4th, 1922, as we've said, okay? Discovered a, discovered a step that marked the entrance to Tutankhamun's tomb, the mother load of Egyptologists. All right. The, the thing that's going to put you into history as an archaeologist, your name written on the sands of time itself. You discovered Tut, boy. When King Tut's tomb itself was discovered on November 26th, after more than 3,000 years of uninterrupted peace, a lot of people believe the Pharaoh unleashed a powerful curse of death and destruction upon all who were dumb enough to go and interrupt his eternal slumber. The alleged curse of the Pharaohs grew to such epic proportions at that time. I'm going to just go over nine. And there's more, but I picked the ones who were, eh, that's were kind of freaky. Nine people who might make you believe in such things, and one who should have been a direct recipient of Tut's wrath, but got off with nary a scratch. Because we need to look at both. Number one is George Herbert, the fifth earl, of Carnarvon, the man who financed the thing, the excavation of Tut's tomb, was the first, apparently, to succumb to the curse. And I want you to hear me out here, because at the end of it, what my real analysis is, what I'm starting to develop in my head reading this, you're going to be pretty surprised. Coffee. 
I'm going to have a take on this that you might, uh, oh, that was lovely, that you might not expect. Lord Canaveron accidentally tore open a mosquito bite while shaving. We talked about that. This occurred a few months after the tomb was open, six weeks after the press started reporting on the mummy's curse, which was thought to afflict uh, anyone associated with disturbing the mummy. Legend has it that when Lord Canaveron died, this is something that we have to mention. This is not, again, this is not apocryphal. This happened, okay? The very second people were there, okay? Yeah, this is corroborated. The very second Lord Cameron died, all the lights in his house, or I should say, all the lights in fucking Cairo went out. Cairo experienced a citywide blackout the moment the man stopped breathing. Pretty bizarre. Number two was Sir Bruce Ingham. Howard Carter, the archaeologist who discovered the tomb, gave a paperweight to his friend Bruce Ingram as a gift, right? The paperweight, appropriately, or I guess inappropriately, consisted of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that was inscribed, Curse be he who moves my body, right? House burned down. Rebuilt it. House was destroyed in a flood. That is insane. Number three is George J. Gould. Gould is rarely talked about. It actually takes quite a bit to research him, and it bugs me that not a lot of these articles and books that you read are going to talk about him, but I think he's a major player in this. Gould was a wealthy American financier, railroad executive. He actually visited King Tut's tomb in 23. He felt sick, fell sick, almost immediately afterward. He never recovered and died of pneumonia a few months later, despite having zero medical problems before that. Audrey Herbert. Lord Kavanaugh's half-brother suffered from the King Tut's curse, people say, merely by being related to, the, to him, right? Audrey Herbert was born with a degenerative eye condition and became totally blind late in life. A doctor suggested his rotten, infected teeth were somehow interfering with his vision, and Herbert had every single tooth pulled from his head, oh God, in an effort to regain his sight. Didn't work. I know it sounds stupid, but people were medically, we didn't have shit figured out very well then at that time. He did, however, die of sepsis as a result of the surgery, five months after the death of his supposedly cursed brother. I know that one's a bit of a stretch, but, uh, you know, you pull abscess teeth, that shit's going to happen. But just thought I'd mention it. Hugh Evelyn White. Evelyn White, a British archaeologist, visited, visited Tut's tomb. May have helped excavate the site, we're not sure. After seeing death sweep over about two dozen of his fellow excavators by 1924, Evelyn White died by suicide, but not before writing in his own fucking blood. And I quote, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. Hmm. Number six, Aaron Ember. American Egyptologist Aaron Ember was friends with many of the people who were present when the tomb was opened, including Lord Camaveron. Ember died in 1926 when his house in Baltimore burned down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He could have exited safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he'd been working on while she fetched their son. What's the manuscript, you say? Huh? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Number seven, Richard Bethel. 
Bethel was Lord Cameron's secretary and the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb. Died in 1929 under some really weird circumstances. Though one modern historian has attributed his death to the work of Satanist killer Aleister Crowley, because that's not crazy, right? Bethel was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. Soon after, the Nottingham uh, Evening Post said, the suggestion is that Richard Bethel had come under the curse, was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home, where some of the priceless finds from Tutankhamun's tomb were stored. Yeah, a lot of fires at his home. Guess what uh, was never damaged in said fires? King Tut's personal shit. No evidence of a connection between the artifacts and Bethel's death were established. I would say that's a connection. <laughs> Number eight, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. Now, I'm only talking about nine, by the way. <laughs> nine of the most, you know, I'd say uh, entertaining ones. Proving that you didn't have to be one of the excavators or expedition backers to fall victim to Tut's curse. Reed, a radiologist, merely x-rayed the mummy before the mummy was given to museum authorities. He got deathly ill the next day and was dead three days later. Number nine, James Henry Breasted. Breasted, another, which we you know talked a little bit about him, member of Carter's team when the King Tut's tomb was open. Shortly thereafter, he allegedly returned home to find that his pet canary had been eaten. We said that the canary died, but I didn't tell you exactly how. Okay, this will freak you out. Just like the inscription, the pet canary was eaten by a cobra. The cobra was still in the cage. Since the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy and a motif that kings were on their headdresses to present, represent protection, this was ominous, to say the least. Breasted himself didn't die until 1935, although his death did occur immediately after a return trip to Egypt, in which he stated before he even got on, you know, before he even started the trip, I shouldn't be going back. The curse is going to get me. Huh. Number 10. Howard Carter. Carter never had a mysterious and explicable illness, and his house never fell victim to any fiery or floody disasters. He died of lymphoma at the age of 64. His tombstone even says, May your spirit live, may you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. Maybe the pharaohs saw fit to spare him from their curse. Now, that was only just a few. <laughs> <laughs> there are others, including one who uh, was one of the delivery men bringing, bringing some, uh, I'm, I'm talking like basically male guy, you know, certified kind of male dude, who was bringing some of Tut's artifacts to the uh, Egyptian Antiquities authorities. And uh, e even these people befell some pretty odd circumstances. Uh, you know, it's one of the delivery men, like bringing a, a crate full of touch shit, you know, like, hey, sign here. Okay, gotta go. See ya. Walks out the door, breaks his fucking neck right there in front of everybody within minutes. <laughs> Is this a real curse? Is this just coincidence? Is this the real life or is this just fantasy? Are we caught in a, a landslide or is there no escape from reality? Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy, but let me tell you. I don't need no sympathy because I have kind of an explanation. If, and if you didn't catch what I just did, <laughs> we can't be friends. <laughs>
I'm sorry. I, I started rolling with that, and I was like, I, I should just keep going. I, I need to keep going with this. See if anybody notices. <laughs> sorry, but <laughs> I derailed. Is this the real deal? Based on the last episode of Strange Places, and I, I, I'm just jazzed that you guys keep listening to this podcast, and uh, I, I, I'm just I'm so thankful of the listenership and people sending me messages saying, "Hey, man, I love this thing. It gets me through my day." I'm really glad you guys are enjoying this, and sometimes I think, I mean, I would. The reason I make a podcast, like the reason I make anything, is because I'll never make anything that I might myself, you know, wouldn't be a fan of. I like listening to strange places, even though I make the damn thing. And I think the pull of strange places is, like I say in every podcast, and I will say in every podcast, common sense <laughs> is so lacking in the realm of the paranormal and supernatural that. It, it's just sickening. It, it, it's not a thing anymore. People never look at what's right in front of them. Either that or they want so much for the thing to be the thing that they ignore evidence that is just obvious, right? Is the Egyptian curse, in particular, Tutankhamun, since we use that as the yardstick, you know, for how we measure what a curse is. Is it the real deal? Well, let me pose this, okay? Just let me let me pose this to you. Let's say it's all coincidence, okay? For argument's sake, let's say all this is coincidence. This carving, remember that we talked about, uh, let me go back here in my notes. Ikenehi of the Sixth Dynasty, Dynasty at Saqqara, okay? This was carved into stone over 3,000 years ago, right? And I quote, As for all men who shall enter this tomb, impure there will be judgment, and shall be made for him, seize his neck like a bird, I shall cast the fear of myself into him. All my Pharaoh brethren. He like laid the groundwork for the curse of anybody who fucks with a Pharaoh. So let's say all this is coincidence, okay? I mean... <laughs> Isn't it true anyway? Right? Think about it. It's just a common sense thing. If some moldy old Egyptian pharaoh says that I curse the tomb of every pharaoh, am I, I archaeologist or not, am I going to be dumb enough to fucking laugh and joke and be an asshole and then, you know, walk into one? Make a trinket out of a mummy's hand? Are you shitting me? I'm not that stupid. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it might be complete bullshit. It might be all coincidence, but I ain't going to play with that. And we've learned in this podcast before that I think that we have made a very strong case. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say we have proven beyond the shadow of a doubt on this podcast that curses are indeed real. But by even saying it's all coincidence... Just the fact that certain things happened to certain people that were exactly what was laid out in the text of said curse actually happened. I mean, they said it would happen, right? Even if it just happened to one out of a thousand people. Could be coincidence, but would you play with that? Not me. Not this little black duck. No way, man. No way. 
in a sense, is the curse real? I'm not stretching here. Right? This was said well before anybody discovered any tombs, before Egyptology was even a thing. Right? Fire, water. What happens? Fire, water. How is that not a curse? <laughs> Coincidence or not? He said it was going to happen. It happened. Now, we need to not stretch and just go with that. <laughs> we need to come up with something solid and concrete here, right? I think when I really look at it, put on my thinking cap, really do some common sense fucking thinking here. I think that the there were so many people who had a lot to do with Tutankhamun's discovery, his tomb, his excavation, his autopsy. And it's proven. They have proven beyond the shadow of a doubt medically that mummies do contain a very dangerous mold in the wrappings. And once you, I mean, and they, uh, you know, Egyptologists, they make account for this now. They're dressed up to the nines, right? Respirators the whole bit. Because we know now that this bacteria is very, very dangerous. It doesn't explain every death. But I, I, I would reasonably suspect that since we didn't know about that bacteria back then, it's probably something we don't know about now, right? Tutankhamun died a very sick boy. A very, uh, you know, in, uh, a lot of people say that inbreeding was a major problem. He was married to his, what, sister? He was the son of Akhenaten, which uh, was another hugely inbred family. King Tut was, uh, he, he was a very, uh, very, very disabled, very sickly young man. Could there have been something in his mummy that we never discovered? Something I don't know. There's speculations of that, actually. There's a lot of weird deaths surrounding, not just Tut, but a lot of the other pharaohs. And it was written so long ago that if you fuck with a pharaoh, you're going to get it. I think just some bizarre things happen that kind of make me twist my nose at the coincidence thing a little bit, to be honest. A citywide blackout, the moment somebody passes, I know that blackouts in Cairo, especially at the time, were kind of a regular thing. <laughs> but that's weird, man. Somebody coming home and seeing a cobra killing the canary that they used to walk into the tomb with, that's bizarre. But then you got to look at it, too. How, what kind of supply are cobras in in Cairo, right? <laughs> Cairo and the cobra. Egypt and the cobra. They go hand in hand. Peas and carrots, Jenny. They go together. You know what I mean? Fucking <laughs> cobras everywhere. We can keep going around and around about this all day. Is the Egyptian curse, is the mummy curse a thing? Is it real? I'm not convinced. Honestly, I'm not. I'm not convinced that it's a real thing, that it's a curse. But I do think that we have established very well, we made a damn good argument for it on this podcast in multiple episodes, that curses are real. Curses are a thing. A person can curse an object or a place. An object can be cursed. A person can be cursed. And the Egyptians, if anybody in history... If any society in history has figured out how to fucking curse shit, it was the Egyptians. They are a deeply mysterious people. And we have artifacts. We have things. We have carvings. I'm not going to get into specifics, but you could argue this all day long. 
without going into specifics, you know damn well that there are some things in Egyptian tombs and pyramids that just blow our minds. We cannot explain. It's evident and it's obvious that the Egyptians knew more than we give them credit for. They were way smarter than we give them credit for. And I think they figured out a hell of a lot more than what we know about. If anybody, any society in history could have created a curse, it's them. I think they were way more advanced than we think they are, than we thought they are. That's obvious. It's right there in your face, clear as crystal. I can give you a million examples. And none of them are explainable. Could they create a curse? I don't know. This one, I don't entirely feel comfortable debunking. Even though my gut is telling me that it it seriously is mere coincidence. A lot of people had a lot to do with King Tut's tomb. But some of those deaths, man, are really, really fucking weird. We've dealt with one in a million circumstances before. We've dealt with one in a billion circumstances before. This could be it. But I don't feel right debunking something being this much on the fence. You dig? Like, I think that the mummy curse, in particular King Tutankhamun's curse, merits some further study. I don't feel right debunking it. My gut is telling me, though, that it's all coincidence, that there's just nothing really of substance here. There's some weird shit here and there, but man, if it was a flat-out curse i mean everybody involved would have had circumstances like that but there are some people that believe if you had any kind of egyptian ancestry going all the way back it didn't touch you that you know the pharaohs wouldn't just wipe out everybody they would make their presence known but they would pick and choose we can go you know round and round about this all day long and the short of it i think that we may have a legitimate phenomenon here i doubt it I sincerely doubt it. There's just not enough there for me. But on this one, I would have no problem saying I'm wrong because there's just a little thing inside my brain saying, no, man, we need some further study here. So this one, we're going to rate officially inconclusive. What do you guys think of the mummy's curse, in particular, King Tut's curse? Speaking of cursed things, it's kind of been a theme on... uh, Strange places lately. And I have kind of a surprise for the next episode. I've been planning this one for a while, but I think since we're kind of on this curse thing streak, you know, I'm going to uh, talk about a personal thing that's actually happened to me, something that you can research, something that you can actually go see. It's not just for extended accounts, it's not all apocryphal. I have a link with a very old and very real, in my opinion, cursed object. And uh, I think we should tackle that on the next one. Uh, (laughs) Strange Places, I'm going to give you something right out of fucking Paducah, Kentucky, where I'm sitting right now. But anyway, guys, uh, what do you think of the Pharaoh's curse? What do you think of the Egyptian curse? Is that a thing? Did I miss any crucial detail about King Tut's curse? They could just blow this whole thing wide open. Let me know. We'll dedicate a part two to it. We'll re-examine it. I'm not going to shut the lid on this thing if I miss something. So let me know. Go to Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there as well as a link to get to our Patreon account where you can get everything from early access to shows, bonus stuff, a podcast just for the patrons. Who does that? Crazy, right? So check it out. For as little as a dollar a month, check it out. Shout out to the patrons who do contribute. I appreciate you. I love you from the bottom of my heart, truly. 
the Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson. Thank you guys so fucking much. I, I'm really appreciative. This show wouldn't have lasted past its first season without you guys, seriously. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And uh, yeah, that's it. Will we ever run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place. And maybe one day, we'll visit yours. The Strange Places podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a music label for truly independent artists. They will distribute and share your music on every streaming platform the internet has to offer. And the best part is that you keep all of your royalties. In fact, DistroKid has made history, marking the first time that an artist on the charts made 100% of their earnings. This is the music industry's worst nightmare, giving indie artists complete control over their art. For only 20 bucks a year, you can upload unlimited music, and with the split feature, you can split a percentage of the earnings to your bandmates. If you click the affiliate link in this episode's description, you get 7% off the first year. But did I mention that after that, it's only 20 bucks a freaking year? I've been a musician for a long time. My music is heard all over the world, and yours should be too. Click the link in this episode's description to not only support Strange Places, but put control of your own music back into your hands. No contracts, no hidden clauses, no lovely coin men in their lovely, lovely suits. Thanks to DistroKid for being a sponsor and giving this old dog an audience.